The following podcast is a production of Mosaic in Whittier, California, a community of faith, hope, and love. For more information about Mosaic gatherings and events, please visit mosaic.org. So last week we looked at Saul and we talked about the idea of talent not being enough. And we've, we've discovered that if your character doesn't exceed your talent in weightiness, that talent is going to end up crushing you. I mean, there, there's, there's talented, gifted people who have zero or little character and they end up hurting themselves and others. In fact, a talented individual with, with little or no character is hurting people more effectively and more efficiently. Um, the character is, is critical, so talent is not enough. And Saul was a good example of a man that had talent and maybe not character. David, this morning that we're going to take a look at, is slightly different. <clears throat> this is a person that has some character traits that are worthwhile. And there's some similarities between these two men. They, they both were skilled uh, in, a, in a military fashion. They, they both had, uh, they, 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 neither one of them really had a, a, what's the word I want? You would not have predicted that they would become kings from their background. It's not as if they were groomed for it. They, they didn't come from a very important family, you know. They both had, um, they're both part of the transition between, in Israel's history, between moving from a group of tribes to a, a, a group of people governed by judges to a time of then a nation that would be, you know, ruled by a monarch, a king. But the difference is that Saul goes down in flames, crashes, and, you know, David has a couple of warts. I mean, they're pretty bad. You know, if you know the story, right? Adultery and murder. Whenever you think of that felt board character of a little boy in, in, with a slingshot killing a giant, which is not, still not accurate, and probably more of a, of a younger man. Um, and, and you think of his poetry, his lyrics. In fact, uh, one of the young men that comes here who's in the music and is in the band... He mentioned that he's been trying to find certain books of the Bible to read, and he's like, man, I'm totally into the Psalms. You know, I said, well, yeah, you're, you're a musician, you're a lyricist, that makes sense. You think of a man who is a, a musician, a lyricist, a warrior, a, a politician. I mean, it goes on and on a number of, of things he does well, but he has a big blowout towards the end of his life, and, and you know, there's, there's that reality as, as well. Still, at the beginning of his life, before he's actually in the role of a king. And then later at the end, he, he's referred to as a man after God's heart by God himself. This, this was a guy that was after me. He, he was concerned about me. He, you know, I, I was a priority in his life. So you have to look at the whole, not just slivers, to get the best picture of what David was and what he was about. The title this morning I chose was, It, it Makes No Sense. And I think that's usually at times what it feels like when you're going to be a follower of Jesus. It just doesn't seem to make sense. Um, it seems that it's, uh, you know, it's kind of, well, let's just say it's stupid, dumb, you're going to lose face. Um, and often people who care about you, family and friends, well-meaning, good intentions, give you the worst advice, even people who are part of spiritual community. And I think primarily that happens is because they're still operating on, um, on, a, on a, and it's, it's not bad, it's just maybe simply or purely a human, um, rational, practical reason and wisdom versus, man, well, what do the scriptures say? Is there, is there a principle that I ought to be following that seems to go against even what, what seems to make sense? The scriptures teach this. So that, that's the title here, it makes no sense. 
Now, here's what I'm going to say then. That sometimes it seems that it makes no sense to be for justice or to be an advocate for justice. 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 9 says this. David and the 600 men with him came to the Bisor Valley, where some stayed behind. And 200 of them were too exhausted to cross the valley but David and the other 400 continued the pursuit. So David, 600 guys, um, they're, they're, they're going to have this fight. 200 guys, um, you know, not, apparently not SEAL Team 6, but 200 of these guys, uh, you, know, you know, I got a boo-boo. No, I'm not, I, I, I'm not a warrior, um, legally. And so there's, um, they just, you know, they, they, were, they were done. Who knows, maybe these guys had not had sufficient rest. They didn't eat. Maybe these were the guys who were the, the front team originally. But what, by the time they get to this particular point, they're just spent. It's always been of interest to me when people lead a group in an organization. I mean, I get it. No one forces you to come here. You choose to come. But when I ever think of leading a group of men who are trained killers, you've got to figure, that guy's got to have an inner core of strength that he's able to command that kind of level of respect. And they allow him to be the leader. He says, hey, why don't you 200 guys stay behind? I'll go with the four. And that's what's happening. So uh, they continue the pursuit. Verse 11, they found an Egyptian in a field and brought him to David. They gave him water to drink, food to eat, part of a cake of pressed figs and two cakes of raisins. He ate, he was revived, for he had not eaten any food or drunk any water for three days and three nights. So David asks him, well, hey, who do you belong to? Where do you come from? The Egyptian answered, I'm an Egyptian, the slave of the Amalekite. My master abandoned me when I became ill three days ago. We raided the Negev, in the, where the Kirathites, some territory belonging to Judah, and the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag. Did you guys follow that? Okay, it's like driving through the valley, all these different communities. So David asked him, well, can you lead me down to this raiding party? He answered, yeah, but swear to me before God that you will not kill me or hand me over to my master. I will take you down to them. So he led David, and there, were, and there they were, scattered over the countryside, eating, drinking, and reveling because of the great amount of plunder they had taken from the land of the Philistines and Judah. David uh, fought them from dusk until the evening of the next day, and none of them got away, except 400 young men who rode off on camels and fled. David recovered everything the Amalekites had taken, including his two wives. Nothing was missing. Young or old, boy or girl, plunder, anything else he had taken. David brought everything back. He took all the flocks and herds, and his men drove them ahead of the livestock, saying, this is David's plunder. Now, give me a little context. We read in Saul last week that he was supposed to wipe out this pretty horrible group, this tribe, and he didn't. And, you know, here it comes back to Hanum. But what had happened is that this uh, city that David lived in was a city called Ziklag. And they had been raided by the Amalekites. The Amalekites just took everything out of the city. David's wives, which probably not, not a smart thing to do. It's sort of, I don't know, what's the word I want? Upset Dave. So he said, we're going to go get our stuff back. Have you guys ever been that, ever uh, had that in high school or you're with your friends from football? Someone takes, your, someone takes one of your buddies' radio or takes his... CDs. They go, dude, let's go get your stuff back. It's kind of like that. So he, they go and, and, and they find this Egyptian slave who had been left behind because he was too weak to, to go on. And they, the Egyptian guy gives his master up. Probably wasn't that hard. And, uh, and they have it out with the Amalekites and they get their stuff back. 
Now remember, there's still 200 left behind, correct? So there's 400 went to fight this battle. Verse 21, then David came to the 200 men who, were, who had been too exhausted to follow him and who were left behind at the Besar Valley. They came out to meet David and the men with him. As David had, and his men approached, he asked them how they were. So they're, they're coming back. The 200 guys probably had a chance to recover. They're feeling better. Like, oh, great, how'd it go? And this is great. David says, yeah, well, how are you guys doing? It's good to hear, you know, oh, how'd it go? Oh, we lost, you know, so-and-so. But this guy's got cut, but, you know. Verse 22, but all the evil men and troublemakers among David's followers said, hey, you know, because they did not go out with us, we're not going to share with them the plunder we, were, we recovered. However, each man may take his wife and children and go. So you can get your wife, you can get your kids, but you're not getting any of the stuff that we fought for. David replied, no, my brothers, you must not do that, uh, do, uh, do that with what the Lord has given us. He didn't give it to you. He gave it to us. He has protected us, delivered into our hands the raiding party that was against us. Who will listen to what you say? The share of the man who stayed with the supplies is to be the same as that of him who went down to the battle. All share alike. And David made this statute an ordinance from Israel to this day. 2 Samuel 8.15 David reigned over all Israel, doing what was just and right for all his people. One of the, um, one of the attractive traits um, about Jesus was that I re- recall the story of the uh, woman caught in adultery that he stands up for. And there was something um, attractive to me about a God who would stand up against religious bullies on my behalf. I know there are voices, I know there are people, I know they're well-intentioned, I know they, they want the best for you. They sometimes lay down upon us or give us a standard or create for us some sort of pref- their preference or their standards that has nothing to do with the scripture. It has nothing to do with even following God. And God wouldn't allow that to happen. This, see, he would stand up to religious bullies on your behalf. What else is also attractive to me is I see David patterning his life after God and being an, an advocate for justice is that whatever is the right thing to do, he'll do it even if it seems to cost him. It wasn't a, I, look, it, it's maybe not a popular decision to uh, be concerned for everybody else's rights, but if it's the right thing to do, it's still the right thing to do. And here's what I noticed when I, when I see people in relationships, it seems to be like two mentalities. There's like either this totem pole you know, vertical mentality, or there's the horizontal mentality. Here's what I mean by that. That especially for people who, if you, if you work in any kind of corporate environment or a, a job, it's, it's almost as if you view life as a zero-sum game. That if I need to succeed, someone else needs to lose. Remember the film, um, There Will Be Blood? I love that line. I thought, oh my gosh. I, he articulated what I would whisper to myself, embarrassed. That I had this competitive streak and that for me to win, somebody has to lose. I can't imagine winning if somebody wins with me. You know, I, I, I was in a sales environment. So, you, you know, if you're going to be number one, I mean, there's, well, there's only one one, right? You can't, you can't be number two and be number one at the same time. So, um, yeah, that's, it's just a, it, it just drives that in us. But we're also, we do this in just life of our relationships, 
And so instead of reconciling, it, if, if, there's a, if there's a conflict, I have to show you where you're wrong for me to be right. I can't even own maybe, wow, I see why you did that, and I see how I caused that. And I see them when you, you know, you, you know it, it's you're wrong, I'm right. And I have to show you how you're wrong so that I can be right. And the conflict's resolved. Everything is hierarchical. Everything is win-lose. Is, is win it's zero-sum. Uh, a horizontal or territorial view of relationships is completely different. I realize that every time I hurt somebody else, that I end up hurting myself. That every time I cause someone else to lose, I've lost. That there's actually... Um, well, you recall, those of you who were here Sunday, you know, those of you who love God and came, they, uh, that, uh, <laughs> that I mentioned one symptom of pride is that you resent when people helping you. The other one is that you rather lose alone, you rather fail alone than succeed of other people. That's another symptom of pride. That's, that's more of a of territorial thinking is that, hey, it, for people, to, there's room for everybody to succeed. That when Leo does well and he's operating in his, his sweet spot, our community is healthier because of it. When Jay does well in his business, with his family, with his life and his community, everybody else wins along with him. It's not just like, oh gosh, why is God blessing Jay? Why can't I get some of that? Which is still pride. Pride will always look at what, what I don't have, what I didn't get, and what wasn't fair. Now David comes from a completely different perspective. He realizes, here's what he sees. He didn't see me, he saw us. That's completely different than how most of us sometimes operate. And if you're healthy relationally, you'll think in terms of us rather than me. Starting from your marriage, friendships, company you work with, um, the community that you're part of. And that is the, you know, the positive and negative of being in a community that's trying to follow Jesus. You're going to bump into people who are looking to do what's right. And what's right, according to the pattern of God, is us, not me. And you'll find yourself, why am I not always fitting in correctly? Why do I find that I, I make decisions that other people seem like, mm, maybe not the healthiest thing you could have done. But you get a different pattern. David was an advocate for justice. Very attractive trait, but that doesn't always make you a hero. You're not always going to be the guy that gets to, you know, um, be the most popular person for it. But it's still the right thing to do, and I'll tell you why, because that's what God expects of us. Uh, I know that folks, you know, if you care about... If it matters to you what, what God thinks of your life and your personality and the scriptures, and if it matters to you, and you think in terms of, man, I want to you know, get closer to Jesus, I want to follow God, that's one, it's not about, it's not about not saying naughty words, though. I said that, maybe that's a peripheral, and I say that because you know, I, I have that challenge still, but it is a lot about justice. It is a lot about caring for other people. It's a lot about speaking up for people who don't have the voice or the power to speak up for themselves. Sometimes it makes no sense to show kindness to other people. Do, do you ever find thinking, it, it just makes no sense to be kind to this kind of, to kind to these kind of people. You ever said that in your head? Okay, just me. So I've just said, you know, like, like you're, in that, you're in that part of town, you're in that supermarket, you're at the 7-Eleven at 2 a.m., uh, you're, you're someplace and you go, it makes, I, I can't, you can't deal with these people that way. Second Samuel chapter nine, verses one through eight. David asked, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba 
they summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. The king asked, Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered, Well, you know, there's still a son of Jonathan, and he's lame in both feet. Let me stop here for just a second. By the time we get to this point in David's life, he has spent about 10 plus years, though he was promised, he was told by God's spokesperson, you are going to be the king of Israel. He spent a lot of time in exile before that actually happened. Years. Lost a wife, battles fought, some things didn't go so well. I mean, you would think it was almost like he was LeBron. He had no fourth quarter. It just wasn't happening. <laughs> oh, uh, hey, I didn't play that game poorly. Don't, don't blame me. <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Just some of you were dozing. So I thought I'd just <laughs> rain it back. And if I needed to cheap shot some athlete to get the energy, willing to do it. Willing to do it. He's not here. <laughs> so I could trash talk. Like I can't even dribble the ball. The only dribbling I do is when I'm asleep. Come on. All right. Now it's like herding cats, bringing it all together. So, uh, and, and when he finally stepped into his role of being king, it only had half the country. And they had to win over the second half. And then finally, he's king. And he's sitting there, in his kingly way, you know. He says, man, is there somebody I can be kind to? From the house of Saul. Now, if you know the story, this is the guy that tried to kill him several times. <laughs> you think you have a lousy boss. <laughs> right, right? Am I, right? You, think you, you think your boss blows. And he may, or she may. He hasn't tried to actually kill you yet. Twice. You didn't have to have that awkward moment. You're like, you know those times where your, your boss flipped out and you know, went nuts and, you know, and then you had to go back to work the next day and you had that awkward, hey, what's, what's up, you know, what's going on? How do you go back to work after your boss threw a spear at you? Hey, got your Starbucks. <laughs> Decaf. <laughs> David was his armor bearer, his you know, harpist, personal musician, right? Because there was no iPods to play. Therapist, maybe. And he go back to, you know, he had a boss at blue. And he thinks specifically, he doesn't, I find this surprising. He's like, is there anybody from the house of David that's still alive that I can kill? Now, I know you, that's kind of, Funny in a way to think of it, right? Except that at that time, Middle Eastern, well, any, any kind of country, an heir, blood heir, would have a legal claim to the throne that David sat on. So you could figure, it's like, is there anybody alive that I need to silence? But instead, he says, is there anybody I can show kindness to? And when Ziba tells David, well, there is a person, but he's lame, it would be like, you know, maybe not somebody you want to bring to the royal palace. Where is he? The king asked. 
He's in the house of Maker, the son of this person in Lodabar. Now, a Lodabar means desert or devastated area. So this metaphor, you probably are already picking up on it. Here's a person who's broken, living in the land of desolation, who's being called by the king to come. Not hard to, not hard to see. So the king... Um, so the king had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of this person, when this guy, Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down and paid him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service. And then David replied, don't be afraid, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all that the land, all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. And Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Don't be afraid. When, um, when David sees Mephibosheth, and he says, Mephibosheth, hey. He answers, you know, at your service. Or, ah, at your ser-. You know, how did David know he was afraid? Was he quaking? Did his voice quiver? Something. But why would, why would he be afraid? Really for good reason. It's almost a tragic story, and you think about it, it's like, ugh. See, this is the grandson of Saul. When Saul dies, not at the hands of David, when he dies and loses the kingdom, Mephibosheth, as a, as a baby, as a small, small child, was being cared for by uh, you know, a nurse, running away from the danger of expecting to have a house slaughtered. She falls with the child and breaks his legs, from which he's never recovered from. Now, I have to imagine that as that person grew up, the, the limp, the inability to walk well, when he would ask, or maybe they told him, we had to run away from David. We had to run from this king. He was going to kill you. So now you've grown, you're, you're, you're in poverty, you've lost whatever you might have had, and then you hear, you know, you think, I, let me just keep below the radar, low profile. Let me avoid this king who once wanted me dead. And then you hear, hey, King David wants to know where you're at and wants you to come to the palace. <laughs> Can it get any worse? I'm already crippled. I've already lost my land. I have zero. And now the king who originally wanted to kill me as a child wants me to come back to the palace. So you have to imagine maybe a, um, the sound that has a bit of an echo like this place, maybe more. You'd have the king sitting at his, maybe coming to the table, and you know, there's Absalom with his hair. What's up, man? And uh, you know, other people there. And, and then you could hear the plops, you know, the plops, the plops of the crippled young man who's walking into the palace, afraid, like, I am coming to the place. I'm coming to the palace of the king who wanted me dead. And why does David show this guy kindness? He had made a commitment to his Mephibosheth's dad, Jonathan. And I, I promise, man, if there's anybody left in your household when I'm king, I'm going to take care of them. And I think also it had to do with D- David recognizing, I don't, I don't deserve this. I've been given this. Not out of deserving, but out, with a responsibility to manage it well, to care for the people of God. I think there's a number of layers for David to have driven this, but see, this is the thing I want to drive home, that at times it seems to make no sense to show kindness. This, in this moment, what he did for this young man, 
uh, ran against the normal grain of the culture. You don't have somebody in that condition come to the palace. You don't have that somebody like this come into, the, the, um, uh, come into your home. You don't give back the stuff to the person that has a legal right to your, to your job. And that's exactly what David did. Like justice at times, it appears kindness runs counter to the advice and the concern that our friends give us. And yet, it might be the most important thing that resembles the pattern of God. And I would also say, as we're kind of winding up, that it makes no sense at times to be, it makes no sense to have an accurate view of yourself or what the scriptures call humility. Second Samuel chapter 7, verse 8, 18. Oh, well, let me tell you this. I'm sorry. Let me set the story up. This is, it won't make sense if you don't hear this, this story. Samuel tells David, hey, this is what your future holds for you. This is what God is going to do through your life. He told David his future involved uh, this important person that we know as Jesus. And David understood a lot about what that meant. Not everything, but a lot. And maybe as David's listening to this conversation about what his future would be, he's still remembering that he didn't matter. He mattered so little to his dad that when Samuel came to say, hey man, where are your sons? One of them's going to be the king of Israel. They didn't even call him. He was out still taking care of the animals. That he was very insignificant in the eyes of even his own family. So he, David, hears what his life will become, how it'll impact the, the history of Israel and the world. So David takes it all in, in verse 18. Then King David went in, sat before the Lord, and said, Who am I, sovereign Lord, and what is my family that you have brought me this far? And if this were not enough in your sight, sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant. And this decree, sovereign Lord, is for a mere human? What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, sovereign Lord. For the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done this great thing and made it known to your servant. How great you are, sovereign Lord. There is no one like you. There is no God but you. As we have heard with our eyes, and who is like a, your people Israel, the one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself and to make a name for himself and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations and their gods from before your people whom you redeemed from Egypt. You've established your people Israel as your very own forever and you, Lord, have become their God. And now, Lord God, keep forever the promise you have made concerning your servant in this house. Do as you promised. So your name will be great forever then people will say, the Lord God Almighty over Israel is, is God over Israel. And the house of your servant David will be established in your sight. Lord Almighty, God of Israel, you have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build a house for you. So your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Sovereign Lord, you are God. Your covenant is trustworthy. In other words, your promises, I can trust your promises. And you have promised these good things to your servant, now be pleased to bless the house of your servant that it may continue forever in your sight. And for you, sovereign Lord, have spoken 
And with your blessing, the house of your servant we blessed forever. Yeah, David was uh, in the midst of processing about building a, a place for God. You know, probably out of gratitude, just, you know, not unlike how he was processing uh, in the house of Saul. Is there somebody I can do, show kindness to? Hey. And, you know, he wants to do this thing for God. And I think we get to those places, don't we? It's kind of normal. You, you hit a place where you think, man, I, you know, I'm very fortunate. And I've done, God has done pretty cool stuff for me. Restoring families. Restoring sanity. Breaking me of weird addictions and patterns and habits. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm married. I'm single. I'm whatever. I, I, you're happy in the state. You're content in the state. Recognizing God had a, had a say in it. Had a part in it. I wish to do this for God. See, when David was processing this, he was thinking, I'm going to build a house for God. And God said, mm, I'll tell you what, I'll build a house for you. And that's when Samuel unloads David's future. This is what David was amazed about. The, the contrast to me is that, see, Saul had to be reminded in 1 Samuel 15. Samuel had to tell Saul, weren't you small at one time? Weren't you insignificant? Didn't I make you the king? Didn't I give you this? Didn't I help you become that? And David is fully aware of it. I mean, he, he you know, some of you who are so creative, artistically, or just creative, period. I mean, because, you know, it, it takes creativity to solve math problems and computer problems and uh, run a household, manage a budget. You know, you, you have to make decisions. You know, we're all creative in different places, right? I, I think at times we, we forget that we don't own those gifts. They were given to us. And sometimes when you step into that moment of, okay, I need to fix this thing in my restaurant. I need to fix this thing in that budget. I need to fix this issue with my family. I need to work. We forget to either remember that God is the one that gave us those abilities and these resources to begin with, and we never invite him into the process of fixing it. Like, like you have a reservoir to pull from. We don't. We're a channel, not a reservoir. When, when Jesus spoke about our lives being filled with the Spirit, he said that it'll be flowing waters, not pulling wells of life. But I think David operated under the notion that he recognized, I, I, I don't deserve this. God brought it, and I need God's help to manage it. I need God's wisdom to do well with what I've been given. And Saul, I think, got to a place where he thought, I own this. And I don't need input to manage it. I think the worst people that we live or work with or know are those folks, unfortunately, male and female, young and old, that believe that the talent and the good fortune resides in them. And they don't need any other input. But I also see this. This is where that pride thing comes popping back up, is that David saw what he had and was grateful. And a person who's prideful sees what they don't have and can't stand anybody else's success. They're unable to appreciate what someone else gets to do or can do because they still view it as zero sum. You know the, uh, the admonition in the New Testament, hey, you know, weep with those who weep and you know, rejoice with those who rejoice. Honestly, the weeping part, not a problem. If you're just a human being, you can do that, right? Somebody suffers a loss. Man, I, I, you can feel that. Somebody gets the promotion you wanted, it's kind of hard to rejoice with them. <laughs> you know, you're moving into a smaller apartment because you lost your home and someone's moving into a larger house. Man, this is great. Come to my housewarming party. It's kind of hard to rejoice, isn't it? That's pride. 
And I, I think, you know, this, again, it's one of those things, we don't think of pride as being in those areas. We just think of it as being this arrogance, but it, it operates in colors so much. There's another issue that is funny about this is that David understood um, that God wasn't fair. And I might have said this once or twice, but I want to repeat it this morning again. Whenever you have this notion that life doesn't seem fair, awesome. You just stepped into a tremendous grasp of the obvious. It isn't. Nobody got what they deserve. Thank goodness. And if you think God's not fair, be grateful. You're right. He isn't. It's not about being fair. It's about showing what's kind and what's merciful, but not fair. I mean, I mean come on. You don't want what's fair. If it was fair, we, would be, we should be punished. But instead, we're, do you understand? We're, Mephib- we're Mephibosheths. We had a fall. We've been broken. We live in a devastation generally. And then we're called into the king's house to live in his house forever. What part of that was fair? When I think in terms of unfairness, and I've been processing that for a few weeks, I, I, I know I have the wrong filter on. I'm looking at life incorrectly. And until I understand, until I'm able to really grasp, not just mentally, but spiritually, emotionally, be grateful, I, I don't trust my decisions. They're not going to come from a healthy place. Micah 6, 1 through 9. Okay, this is what I'm going to close on. So, depending on your, the Bible you have, this is what God is sort of trying to help Israel or his people get about their relationship. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. So picture this scene. It's a a poetic. He's saying, hey, mountains, I want you to be a witness. Since you're going to be here forever, I want you to be a a witness to what I'm going to say to Israel. So that they don't misunderstand and you can let me know if I'm incorrect. Now he speaks to Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. Pause. Reminder, this is always God's pattern with, when speaking to you. He starts with this. I brought you out of Egypt. I redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you. Also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember when Balak, king of Moab, plotted? And what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered? Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord? And so he stops there. He says, look, I, I took you out of what was a mess. And then when he talks Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, I put you in a community of people who cared. You remember when these people tried to hurt you? I was there. You know, how, how have I been a burden? Do, do I owe you money? Did I forget to put gas in the car you lent? Is there something that I've taken from you that I didn't pay back yet? Now, this is Micah responding. As spokesperson, they say for Israel, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come with, uh, before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? This is the verse. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? 
to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. I, I don't know um, anyone who, as I said a moment ago, if you care about stuff with God, you know, you, this, is, this matters to you, you want to step into a healthier way of living and thinking, you know, I, I've joked about this hundreds of times. It's not moving to Orange County. It's not, moving to, it's not becoming a Republican. It's not cutting your hair a certain way. It has nothing to do with the externals. It has everything to do with the way you behave towards other people. That's going to be how you see what God actually did. You love justice. You love mercy and kindness. You have an honest, clear appraisal of who you are. You're humble. This is what God wants from us. Now, let me stop as I begin to close this on Father's Day. That, you know, some of you are going to go to um, your, um, your parents' home, or you're going to go see your dad. Maybe some of you, your dads have passed away. You're going to pause and think about, you know, depending on the tape you're going to run, right? You're going to run my dad's the jerk tape, or my dad was, oh, he tried. And dad, you know what? <laughs> Actually, as you get older, usually you get a little kinder. You know what? Wow, I'm surprised he didn't take me out to the beach and drown me. Uh, you play that tape. In the midst of processing our dads, good or bad, hey, you know, some of us probably need to forgive a lot. Got it. But our Heavenly Father, no matter how great your dad might have been, still wasn't the Heavenly Father that we have. And I, I find it powerful to remember that I share that title with God that he wants to use to help us understand who he is. I'm your father. All that that was good entails but I'm not like your human father, no matter how good he was. I don't get tired. I don't come home grouchy from work. When I'm hungry, I'm not put off. I don't have moments when I'm not interested in seeing what you just built with your Lego set. I get you. Always understand what you mean when you have trouble explaining it. Um, I'm aware when you're in trouble, even if you don't tell me. I know when you need rescue, even if you can't say it. You know, everything that maybe dad ought to be and, and, and wasn't, and, or sometimes was, right? I'm your father. But like, unlike your father, I, I'm, quote, in heaven. I'm not mortal. I'm, I'm, I'm good. Good for you. <laughs> and whatever great or good thing you expect or hope to see in your life, understand I want it more for you. I'm incredibly for you. I'm your father in heaven. And if you wish to pattern your life after my life, you know how, um, you know, by the way, how many of us are parents? Where's your room? Mom or dads? Okay. Just so you guys know, all of you who are not parents yet, you know how sometimes you don't like your parents? I think I said this before. Yeah, I, I hate, hate to break it to you, sometimes we don't like you either. You know, <laughs> Just, we always love you, but sometimes you get on our nerves, you know? They're not always our favorite, you know, we just, you know, there's some days it's like, <laughs> as I've joked before, having kids, I understand why tigers eat their young. <laughs> as having been a child, I understand the Melendez brothers. But the point is, uh, the point in the response <laughs> is, um, hey, look, if you want to, uh, I, I, I always love you. This is what God from heaven, okay, saying, right? I'm, I'm going to close it before I get stupider. I always love you. That's been settled. You can't behave in a way that makes me love you more or love you less. But you wish to experience my pleasure. You want to experience my respect for your life? 
You want to experience that God likes you? Micah 6, 1 through 9. Love mercy. Love justice. Walk humbly before your God. Father in heaven, how do we thank you for who you are and how good you are? And as often as we try to clean up our lives and do what's pleasing to you, it seems that in the end, everything being so relational, you measure how well we're doing with you by how we do with others. So I pray for my friends this morning, as I pray for myself, help me to remember that it's how I treat my wife, my kids, my friends. That is a better litmus test of who I am and how well I'm doing following you than anything else I may be doing. This Father's Day, help us to process our dads in a way that's healthy. Maybe it's showing uh, a thanks, maybe it's forgiveness, maybe it's a number of things. But help us to process that in the light of our Heavenly Father. And it's in your son's name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this production by Mosaic Whittier, a community of faith, hope, and love. For more information about Mosaic gatherings and events, please visit mosaic.org.